Blaze On Demand. This is Ben Weingarten of The Blaze Books, and today I'm joined by Melanie Phillips, a columnist of the Times of London, journalist, broadcaster, and author specifically of a book that we've written about recently, Londonistan, a book written in 2006 that was quite prescient and continues to be relevant today, as well as another book we've covered, a Guardian Angel, which gives some insight into Melanie Phillips' background and ideological journey, as well as The World Turned Upside Down, The Global Battle Over God, Truth, and Power, which brings together sort of all of the themes of these different books into one coherent book about the battle of ideas that the Western world is currently undergoing. Melanie, thanks for joining us. Nice to speak to you again. Now, Melanie, you're joining from Israel today. Uh, what, what brings you to Israel, and how are things on the ground there? Um, I have family here and a place here, and uh, I go back and forward between here and London. Um, things on the ground are pretty tense. Um, the rolling war blog um, that I look at, um, I've just seen uh, there is considerable uh, expectation that um, the war is now going to get started again because Israel has uh, dealt the Hamas a very severe blow. Um, it may or may not have assassinated a man called Mohammed Daif, who is a key figure. It doesn't, we don't know whether he has actually been killed, but it has killed three very, very senior Hamas uh, commanders. And it is believed that that will provoke Hamas to start doing everything it possibly can, firing rockets, suicide bomb attack attempts, uh, perhaps more tunnel attacks, in order to prove to its own people that it's not beaten. Um, and Israel, as of this moment, is calling up reservists again. 10,000 reservists are being called up. So the mood in Israel is one of stoical, uh, determined um, concern. Uh, people here are remarkably united. Um, there is virtually no dissent from the belief that this thing has to be seen through to the end. People are very, very concerned that after many, many years of relentless attacks from Gaza, during which period, every so often, uh, Israel's defense forces, Israel's um, air force has gone in, uh, in bombing raids, in limited campaigns, and the most those have done is buy a little bit of relative peace for a very short period of time. But basically, the south of the country has been under sustained rocket attack, with its citizens virtually living in shelters for many, many years. And people say, enough, this is intolerable. We have to finally defeat the Hamas. Now, this is easier said than done, uh, because what Israel will not do is precisely what its detractors in the West accuse it of doing, which is basically raising Gaza to the ground. It could do that in a day, but it won't do it, because it is concerned not to kill innocent civilians. And so it tries to take out Hamas, it tries to take out Islamic Jihad, it tries to take out the people who are... Uh, in the business of death and destruction, and it takes the view that if they don't uh, do anything bad, it will leave them alone. Um, and so it is an extraordinarily difficult uh, thing to do, because as we know, uh, Hamas have situated its arsenals um, among and beneath the civilian population. I mean, as far as I can see, much of 
Gaza, that is much of inhabited Gaza, has become one giant human shield. Um, and consequently, since Israel is concerned to protect innocent life, it cannot uh, get at this terror infrastructure without killing a lot of civilians, which it simply won't do. And so it's forced to find ways in which it simply tries to take out the men of violence without touching the civilians. This is extraordinarily difficult. And it is very hard to see, given that, how this can be brought to an end simply by um, military means. Mm-hmm. And it's ironic, of course, that while Israel is castigated by the rest of the world, this is the first time in human history, basically, where we fight wars in which civilians are off limits. I mean, in going back centuries, war is about destroying the enemy. Israel has developed technologies, um, many times in partnership with America and the rest of the West, which have enabled it to directly target those who are launching rockets at them and otherwise agitating and terrorizing the Israeli population. And that's enabled Israel to fight wars now where civilians are off limits. I think that's just kind of an, an ironic uh, thing about this. Now, looking at, at the Western media, we see a sort of re- realignment of power. You know, many sources have spoken about the rift that's grown between the U.S. and Israel during this time, even to the shock, it seems. I've read a couple articles in the Times of Israel about, you know, we're shocked that at the level of animus, basically, of the U.S. leadership towards Israel. And so filling that power vacuum has been Sisi in Egypt, the Saudis. And and that has been kind of countered by, on the other hand, you know, Qatar, who theoretically is supposed to be brokering some peace, but Qatar is also a huge terror-sponsoring state. My question is, on the ground in Israel, do people realize at this point that the U.S. cannot be relied upon under this leadership to be a stalwart backer of Israel against its enemies? Absolutely. People assume that uh, President Obama is an obstacle uh, which has to be uh, negotiated, at best an obstacle which has to be negotiated around. At worst, he is actively helping the Hamas um, because, um, you know, ostensibly helping Israel. Um, And people are, you know, they're very aware that America helps fund the Iron Dome, and that's very important. They're very aware that America helps uh, provide a lot of uh, military equipment and ammunition and all the rest of it. Um, But uh, they're also very aware that um, President Obama himself uh, displays a very, very considerable amount of animus uh, against Israel. Um, I mean, uh, I read with astonishment, uh, the piece that appeared, what was it, a week ago, two weeks ago in the Wall Street Journal, Mm -hmm. in which unnamed members of the Obama administration were whinging and whining that Israel had been leaking against the uh, Obama administration. I mean, the first thing that struck me was, what was that piece in the Wall Street Journal, if not a leak by the Obama administration designed to destabilize Prime Minister Netanyahu's government. Um, and uh, people were, were very shocked to find um, that in this row that had apparently blown up that people didn't know about um, over 
the Israeli government allegedly going behind the White House's back to Congress to get authorization for more equipment. As far as Israel's concerned, that's if, as far as official Israel is concerned, that was what they always have done. There was nothing particularly unusual about that. But anyway, people were very shocked that as a result of that row, um, it would it, it appeared that Obama was was basically holding up supplies at a time when Israel is under such terrible pressure uh, and under such terrible attack. And people regarded that people here regarded that as an act of outright malice, outright malice. Um, you know, uh, to to withdraw aid from your supposed ally at a time of such need is in effect to be aiding the enemy, is in effect to be aiding Hamas. And then at the very same time, Obama signed this mega deal, arms deal with Qatar. Qatar is on the wrong side of the battle for civilization. Qatar uh, is, behind the, is behind Hamas, uh, is behind, you know, Islamists. Um, and people are astonished and horrified that the country that they've taken for granted uh, as an ally of, of Israel um, uh, not only can't be relied on to come to itself, but also is suspected of acting for Israel's enemies. And behind all of that, people are extremely concerned about the role that America is uh, taking in pushing what people here to be see to, to what people here see uh, to be coming, which is a cave into Iran, which basically will enable Iran to progress maybe a little more slow than otherwise it might have liked, but we're enabling Iran to progress to get the bomb. Mm -hmm. And ironically, of course, and granted, in the in the case of Iran, Russia is clearly on Iran's side, and I, I guess you could say that we are sort of de facto taking Iran's side in these negotiations. We obviously haven't seen that side letter agreement, but we can imagine what's in it. Talk about the world turned upside down. You have Russia siding with the authoritarian regimes in the region, which keeps stability. And you have the U.S., on the other hand, on the side of, you know, the quote-unquote rebels. It's just, uh, it's unbelievable how quickly the realignment has happened, and also how when the U.S., steps back from the world, the vacuum is filled by all of its worst players. Well, you see, that's absolutely right. It's stepped back from the world. It's stepped back from America's historic role in um, uh, keeping peace uh, uh, in, the, in the interests of democracy and freedom. Um, but you see, he hasn't really stepped back because it's worse. Obama is aiding the enemies of the West. I mean, he's aiding Iran. He's enabled Iran to become this really strong force in the region. He's aiding people like Qatar and Turkey. He is aiding the Muslim Brotherhood. He's trying to punish General Sisi, who I must say, you know, I'm sure none of us would wish to uh, take General Sisi home for tea with our grandmothers, but nevertheless... Or Mubarak or Gaddafi before him, right? Well, but nevertheless, you know, General Sisi, you know, on this occasion, my enemy's enemy is my friend. General Sisi is intent on stopping the Muslim Brotherhood. And he probably alone in the region can stop the Brotherhood. He has stopped them in Egypt. And he should be given every assistance by us because the Brotherhood are a mortal threat to us. Egypt is not a mortal threat to us. Instead, Obama is taking the side of the brothers um, and is trying to push the brothers. So, you know, time and again, President Obama seems not to be simply withdrawing from the global fray, that would be bad enough 
to leave a vacuum, but he's actually aiding and abetting the enemies of the West. Yeah, and that includes, of course, what he's called one of his closest friends in the world, um, Erdogan in Turkey, who, of course, is also on the wrong side in all of this and turning away from secular military sort of dictatorship towards a an Islamic regime. Um, I want to talk a little bit to transition over towards Europe and your book, Londonistan, and what's going on in the world today. Clearly, the propaganda from Europe has been great during this Israeli operation. Uh, You've had reporters who have been in hospitals where rockets are being launched, and they only report on the rockets that come from Israel that hit the hospitals. Speak a little bit to the history of the propaganda coming out of Europe, which they would say, which some would say is anti-Zionist, I would say is anti-Semitic, and then link that to the growing anti-Semitism that we're seeing throughout Europe in pretty much every country in the region. Well, to start with, I'm not sure that it was only Britain's media which failed to report um, the uh, activities of Hamas properly in Gaza. Uh, because all journalists were basically put under threat from Hamas. And those journalists who weren't threatened or intimidated, or those journalists who say they had no knowledge of any threat or intimidation, one can only assume that that was indeed true because they were putting over the story that Hamas wanted them to put over. So, you know, the media generally, I think, is very much to blame for all that. But I think it's probably true that Britain's media is the most vicious and the most malevolent towards Israel. Um, and that, I think, is due to um, a number of factors, of which um, one of the most important is the, uh, the situation, as far as the media in Britain is concerned, is that they are pretty well signed up to um, a left-wing perspective, which I suppose is broadly true in America to a large extent, but you see in Britain there is no alternative. We don't have Fox News, we don't have talk radio. So we have a homogenous media narrative to which there is simply no alternative provided. And consequently, they have absolutely a sort of free hand to be as dreadful as they can. So they buy completely into the Hamas narrative, um, partly because that's all they're being told or fed by the people on the ground for the reasons that I just said, that they are being threatened by Hamas, but also because before even the campaign started, the prism through which the British media see Israel is that Israel is the principal actor in the region. It, it is Israel's activities which drive events. Israel is never the recipient events. Israel is never the victim of events. Israel is the driver. So if rockets come over to Israel, these are ignored. If rockets uh, are fired from Gaza, thousands of rockets, Israelis living in air raid shelters, it's ignored. But as soon as Israel mounts a military campaign in Gaza, that's the story. So all the time this is what's going on. And you know, it is Israel which is dragging its feet over the two-state solution. The fact that the uh, Palestinian Authority under the so-called moderate Mahmoud Abbas uh, was responsible for basically uh, uh, refusing to to, get to, to to give any kind of compromise, whereas Israel was giving compromise after compromise, completely negated. 
only Israel can do wrong, the Palestinians can only do right because Israel is the strong actor, Israel is backed by America, Israel is a nuclear power, and all the rest of it, whereas all the Palestinians have is slings and stones. What gets going, um, and you know, in Gaza, Operation Protective Edge, um, and then all these terrible pictures are produced by the Hamas of, um, of uh, dead babies, and the British media just put them over every day and um, uh, behaved with extraordinary malice towards Israeli spokesmen who they hardly would let speak and insisted they were all child killers and terrible things like that. But you know, here's another little little anecdote to give you an example to, to give you an illustration of quite how malevolent the British media are. There's a rather great guy called Colonel Richard Kemp, who you may or may not have heard of, who was formerly the commander of British forces in Afghanistan. And he is very, very, very strongly supportive of Israel, not least because when he was commanding the British forces in Afghanistan and came up against suicide bombings, it was the Israelis who uh, showed him uh, how to protect his troops. And so through that, many, many British soldiers' lives were saved. And that, among other reasons, is why Richard Kemp uh, is very supportive of Israel. So he came here during the Protective Age to see what he could do to help uh, promote Israel's uh, case. He is, after all, a military expert. He has considerable experience in Northern Ireland and then in Afghanistan of fighting guerrilla uh, insurgencies. Um, uh, he knows the terrain. He is someone with great credibility. And he's also someone who, a few years ago, went before the United Nations and said to the United Nations, Israel has the most moral army in the history of warfare. So, when he was here during Protective Edge, he told the BBC, he told Sky News, he told other broadcasting elements he was here, and he said, I'm very happy to come on to your shows and you know, use me as an expert on hand to analyze the situation. They didn't use him once. They came to him to talk about other world events. Please talk about what we do about Ukraine. He's in Israel, he's in Tel Aviv. Didn't use him, not once. Because they knew that they would get from him a story which ran against the story they were telling, which was basically Israel's child is child killers, it's behaving disproportionately, um, it's out of control. Um, and they would get something that was very different, and it would have the stamp of complete credibility because of the sort of guy he is. So they didn't have him on. And that's what one's up against. Now, that feeds directly into what we have seen uh, develop in the last few weeks which is an outpouring in Britain and Europe of uh, rampant and overt anti-Semitism, um, with people shouting and saying things and writing things uh, which are directed at Jews as Jews, with attacks on Jews. In, in, in Britain, I think it's gone up by some 500%, some enormous amount, verbal and physical attacks on Jews going, you know, going on. Um, and this, I believe, is directly related to the media coverage. If you have media coverage, television pictures, which night after night show these appalling pictures of babies with half their heads shot off, 
and you say the Israelis are doing this every night and you give no context, you don't say, for example, that some 450 Hamas rockets fell short in Gaza and possibly some of them are responsible for these injuries. You don't say any of that. You say there are N hundred casualties, the vast majority of whom are civilians. You don't say that those figures are given by the UN, but they are the Hamas figures. You don't say that the UN uh, Relief and Works Agency is hand in glove with the Hamas. You don't say any of that. You mean the UN isn't a credible source of data? I'm absolutely not a credible source of data. I think the UN personally should be subject to a commission of inquiry for aiding and abetting war crimes. But anyway, so if you are a perfectly reasonable British person, um, you are horrified by this. And then you make a leap. And this is where it becomes, again, anti-Semitism, because you then blame all Jews for this. Um, you assume that all Jews are responsible for the so-called crimes of Israel. And that's the non-Muslim population. We have the Muslim population who are all the time, you know, uh, very hostile, not just to Israel, but to the Jewish people, because they, you know, many, many, many Muslims, in my view, the majority are brought up uh, on a set of myths, bigoted myths about Jews, which makes them predisposed to dislike Jews and not hate them. And then you get this, this story being told of these terrible, these terrible injuries being inflicted upon innocent children in Gaza. And uh, Muslims start taking to the streets and become very violent because they are enraged. So in my view, the role played by the media in this has been one of incitement and insofar as they have uncritically, without any kind of health warnings, that these reports are produced under Hamas censorship, I think they become, accept uh, themselves, accessories to war crimes. Mm -hmm. We spoke several months ago, and obviously in Wandanistan you talk about immigration, not just into Great Britain, but in, in Europe more broadly, of mass amounts of primarily Arabs, also North Africans, um, and the fact that when you get to the second and third generations, the Islamic supremacism is the dominant ideology among these populations. It stands to reason then that a significant percentage of the anti-Semitism in Europe probably stems from those populations. But when I asked you about it, you said that it was actually native Europeans as well who were very staunchly anti-Semitic. And I think that might surprise some of our listeners. So try to quantify that and, and explain for us who it is that's behind the anti-Semitism in Europe. It's very difficult to quantify. Um, there are no really reliable figures to enable one to break this down. So this is by almost, you know, by, de by definition, an impressionistic analysis. Um, but there's no doubt that the presence of so many Muslims in Britain and Europe has upped the ante, has made the protests and the feeling against Israel and the Jews much more violent, um, much more hysterical, much more out of control. Um, but the animus against Israel precedes that uh, demographic shift in Europe. Um, 
I mean, it goes back, I would say, to the, I mean, well, many people think that everything changed in the 1967 war after the Six-Day War when Israel turned from being David into Goliath. So that's a very conventional thing. I don't actually buy that for various reasons, but I do think that around the late 60s, the Palestinian leadership under Yasser Arafat, almost certainly in cahoots with the Soviet, then, then Soviet Union, uh, decided that they couldn't defeat Israel by military means, and therefore they would use Soviet-style uh, psychological warfare, black propaganda, and they would change the narrative from the Arab war against the Jews to a fight between the Israelis and the Palestinians, and the Palestinians then, you know, developed a nationality and an identity of their own. And Arafat himself, of course, may have been a KGB agent himself. There's evidence out there to indicate that. That's as may be. Now, this played into, I think, um, a tremendous animosity in Britain and Europe against the Jewish people. Leave Israel to one side for a moment. But, you know, there's unfinished business here. The unfinished business is the Holocaust. Because people have told themselves the nice little uh, story that uh, the Holocaust uh, was produced by Nazi Germans. Nothing to do with us. It's not true. It was aided and abetted by uh, many, many European countries, including Britain. And Britain uh, barred the gates of, closed the gates of Palestine, as it then was. Uh, to European Jewish refugees trying to flee Europe, um, barred the gates of Palestine in contravention of its own, British Britain's own uh, legally binding obligation to settle Jews in Palestine. So there's un unfinished business, and there's a lot of buried and semi-buried guilt about the Jews. And I think that, you know, the, 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 the really sort of core thing underneath all this, in addition to sort of cultural dislike of Jews, which is in Europe because it's in European culture. Uh, it's, in, it's in English literature, it's in English history, it's in European literature and history. It's all there. But there is this unfinished business of the Holocaust in that the Europeans cannot deal with the guilt from the Holocaust. They can't deal with the fact that they did this, that the epicenter of the, of the Enlightenment the epicenter of civilization, um, uh, you know, the birthplace of these great writers and artists, Goethe, Mozart, all the rest of it, they can't bear the fact that this was done to the Jewish people. And consequently, they have to erase it. And the way they erase it is by saying uh, the Jews are Nazis, the Israelis are Nazis, because if the Israelis are Nazis, the Nazis weren't really that bad. And therefore, our guilt isn't that bad. And so when the Israelis say, never again, and that's what protective edges are all about in Gaza, what they mean is, never again will we go a sheep to the slaughter. We will defend ourselves, and we will fight to preserve our lives and the Jewish people. That's what never again means to Jews. But to the Europeans, they say, the, the, the Europeans say, never again. And what they mean is, never again will we allow Jews to be seen as victims, because we will not be able to bear that guilt again, and so we erase their victimhood. So now, they can only be the drivers of bad things, and indeed Nazis, um, child killers, and all the rest of it. So that's basically what's, what's going on in, in, in Europe. And then you have this added dimension 
of these large and growing Muslim populations um, who, whose culture uh, tells them that Jews are bad people, tells them all kinds of terrible myths and the protocols of the elders of Zion, the, uh, the uh, notorious uh, Tsarist forgery um, that was produced uh, at the end of the last century, um, uh, sorry, at the end of the 19th century, um, um, around the beginning of the 20th century. Um, a forgery which purported to show there was a world, a global conspiracy of Jews to take over the world and do terrible things. That is believed the length and breadth of the Muslim and Arab world. So you have that's a starting point, and then you have this, you know, the, 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 the mythology of Palestinianism, uh, the mythology about Israel, um, and uh, uh, you also have. Um, uh, the going on, going alongside all of that, separately but related, uh, you have the project uh, led by the Muslim Brotherhood to Islamize Britain and Europe, um, and to foment radicalism, radical the, the, the radicalization of young Muslims. So, as you said earlier, you have the, we have this phenomenon in Britain where it's the children who become radicalized and. You know, in all of this, one has to bear in mind, one must not forget there are literally millions of Muslims who don't want any of this. They don't want to behead people. They don't want terrorism. They don't, they don't support terrorism. They don't want to live under Sharia law. They come to Britain uh, from Pakistan, Bangladesh, wherever. They come to Britain because they want human rights. They want to live in freedom. They want democracy. Their women want to be equal citizens. They just want to bring up their children in peace and quiet and make a living, and just like the rest of us. There are millions of Muslims like that. Um, the problem is there are many unquantifiable thousands who are not. They tend to be young uh, because they've been brought up as British boys, some of them are girls, and they're mainly British boys, born and bred in Britain, going to ordinary schools in Britain, but going also to Islamic education institutions or mosques and madrasas, uh, which are themselves radical. Uh, they are preaching a you know, Wahhabi uh, extremist Islamist version of Islam. And even if they're not caught there, they will go to university where they are um, the uh, vulnerable targets of shrewd Islamists who understand that these British Muslim boys are kind of caught between two worlds very often. They come from Muslim backgrounds, but they're born and bred in Britain, which is pretty degraded. They have, you know, sex and drugs and girls throwing themselves at them the whole time. They participate in that. They're full of disgust that they're Muslim boys. And they're brought up to believe that's wrong. And then they're kind of, you know, there's, a, there's an innate disgust. And that's where they become vulnerable to the Islamic recruiters who told them your life is degraded but you are a Muslim and you must now make a, a, have a purpose to your life which is noble and good and true and what better, what more noble and good and true for you than defending your people um, and doing God's work. Um, and so they're caught. And even boys who are very highly educated come from comfortable homes, they're caught. And so now we have this terrible, terrible phenomenon, which we've seen an example of uh, um, uh, only, uh, only, uh, only this week. And apparently uh, a British Muslim boy 
who became radicalized, went to Syria, joined up with ISIS, apparently is responsible for the beheading of this American journalist. And there are many others like him. Our security service in Britain has warned there are hundreds of these boys, untold hundreds, who have gone to sign up with ISIS and who are going to come back from Syria, from Iraq, uh, where they've been fighting in a war which has got nothing to do with Britain. They're going to come back and kill Britons. That's the fear, because they are radicalized against uh, the whole of the not sufficiently pious or not Muslim world. Mm -hmm. And I view Britain as sort of the canary in the coal mine for the U.S. and, and really the rest of the Western world here. Progressivism has taken hold in, an, in a way that's akin to the way it's taken hold in the U.S., but with it you've also had the major demographic changes like you've documented of mass Islamic immigration into the country, uh, the end result being, like you said, a presumed British citizen who beheaded James Foley. There's also been, I've read recently, a conspiracy in Britain about how certain schools were implementing an Islamic agenda. I wonder, do you think something like that can happen in the U.S.? And more broadly, what is Great Britain doing to counter this threat, and is there anything the U.S. can learn from it? My presumption is that the Great Britain is probably teaching the wrong lessons to the U.S. and the rest of the Western world, given the political correctness and the multiculturalism, but I'd like to hear your thoughts. The, uh, the plots in the British schools came as a terrible shock to people. It didn't come as a shock to me. It was quite obvious as what was going to happen. Um, and they haven't really got to the bottom of it. They've identified some schools uh, where these are ordinary regular schools with large Muslim, uh, large numbers of Muslim children, where Muslims infiltrated, basically, deliberately infiltrated the board of governors, um, the people who control the school in order to turn the school into basically an Islamic school with Islamic values and so on. Um, and I'm sure there are many more schools like that. Um, now, the teachers in Britain who tried to warn about this, some of whom were, were sacked um, or were forced to resign because they simply couldn't cope with the aggression of the Muslims who were taking over in this way, the control of the schools. Those teachers were ignored. I mean, this was like years ago. Um, and the reason they were ignored was because, as you say, of multiculturalism and political correctness, that it's considered to be Islamophobic uh, to say there could be anything like a plot like this. Um, it's a kind of paranoid conspiracy theory, um, and therefore, because it involves Muslims who are a minority, um, it's therefore racist and Islamophobic. And that's how it works. And it was only when the thing got to an extraordinary pitch, and because at the time uh, we had an education uh, minister called Michael Gove, um, who happens to be one of the very, very few British politicians who really is clued up about Islamization, it was only because of him that this thing was finally unearthed. And even then, there was a lot of, you know, sucking of teeth about, you know, picking on, picking on these Muslims and demonizing all Muslims. Um, and I think, I mean, I don't know enough about your education system to know whether the structure of your system would allow this kind of thing to happen in quite the same way. But I'm thinking of things like your Fort Hood massacre 
um, and other stuff which has gone on in, in America, where the same, the same thing applies. People in a position to do something about it, who have a duty to do something to, to stop this, literally look the other way for fear of being Islamophobic or prejudiced against a minority or stepping on the toes of what is basically a religion. I think in America you have an even worse problem. Because you have a separation of, of, of religion and state to a much greater degree than we have in Britain, there is this tremendous uh, oversensitivity in America of allowing the private space that is religion to be untouched. So you cannot say there's anything wrong with Islam because that's you know the, the state mustn't get involved in that. And that's an enormous trap for America. And uh, I've been following from a distance what's been going on in America, and I've been very troubled by it because it seems to me that your, um, your security uh, defense people, um, I'm speaking loosely, I don't mean necessarily your, your defense ministry, but, but people involved in, in the security of the nation have been very heavily infiltrated by Muslim Brotherhood people. And again, nobody can say anything against this because that is Islamophobic. But this means that they've taken on people who are not just Muslims, uh, but they are Muslims who subscribe to an interpretation of the religion, uh, which means that they wish to um, turn America uh, into a country which accords with Muslim values. Um, and I don't know whether anyone's actually taking this on um, or doing anything about it, but that's what has to stop. Um, you see, in Britain, to go back to Britain for a moment, um, when the Soviet Union collapsed, uh, maybe even before the, um, the uh, Berlin Wall came down, uh, Britain kind of abolished the notion of subversion. Um, it understood what subversion was with Soviet communism. It understood how it worked. It understood the strategy and tactics that Soviet communism would employ in order to burrow into a society from within and turn it. And it developed various strategies, and America was, was the same, various strategies during the Cold War to combat subversion. And then when the Cold War ended, Britain abolished subversion. In the British police, uh, there were, or intelligence service, I should say, the intelligence service, um, as I understand it, there was a whole department uh, which had built up a very considerable body of expertise about subversion, what it was, how it could develop, how it could spread, how you stopped it, how you addressed it. And that department was abolished. And all that expertise, which can be used for any subversion, has vanished. We don't have it in Britain, as far as I understand it, not at all. So, in my view, Islamism, um, the attempt to Islamize Britain and America and Western countries, is absolutely a form of subversion. And we should be using techniques that, you know, once we understood to identify it, and to deal with it, but we don't. And until we actually understand this is not just religion, this is a political program, because Islam is a fusion of politics and religion, uh, because it doesn't accept there is any kind of secular authority above, um, above God. Um, until we understand that um, 
you can't just say, well, this is their religion and we can't interfere. It's a political agenda. Until we understand that, and then it's a subversive political agenda, but we're not going to make any um, inroads into stopping this. Melanie, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. For more on this and other books, you can visit The Blaze Books at www.theblaze.com books, and follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash theblazebooks, and Twitter at theblazebooks. You can follow me on Twitter at bhweingarten.